Welcome to CMI TV's Time for Biblical Q&A. In this video series, Dr. Robert Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International, will offer biblical answers to the questions you send him via email. Questions may be sent to questions at congdonministries.org. Dr. Congdon will answer each question by applying the Biblicist method of Bible study. This means that his answers will be based upon a literal, normal, historical, and grammatical interpretation of the scriptures. Where appropriate, he will explain why the Biblicist's approach to Bible interpretation offers a more accurate answer to questions than the Reformed Calvinist's approach that is being applied and widely propagated by many in churches today. Here is a question submitted by a viewer. I have often wondered how two Bible teachers can study the same passage and arrive at two diametrically opposed interpretations. For example, when it comes to prophecy regarding future events, Calvinists and Biblicists hold significantly different views. Would you please explain why this can happen when they read the same Bible? Thank you. And now, Dr. Congdon's response. In order to answer this question, I'm going to leave the theological world temporarily and enter the world of mathematics, where a recent controversy developed over the method of solving an equation. This viral internet event offers us an excellent introduction to the theological enigma as to how two Bible teachers can arrive at diametrically opposed teaching all over the same Bible passage. On July 28th of this year, a girl named M, that's E-M, asked her fellow tweeters to solve an equation she presented. Within hours, her tweet went viral, with more than 7,800 people liking her tweet and over 10,000 people offering their answers. Here is her equation. Eight divided by two, parentheses, two plus two, close parentheses, equals. Now, if you can still remember your algebra, you probably came up with the number one as your answer. But others on the internet said, no, it was 16. This is a case where two individuals can look at exactly the same equation and come up with two different answers. Now, there are rules that first must be learned regarding the steps to solving equations. If those rules aren't followed, the answers will be different. Notice, this situation is really similar to our theological problem, except that in math equation, it was written in this case with intentional ambiguity. But in the scriptures, there are no ambiguities. Now, the answer to this seeming enigma lies in the method of analysis used. Actually, there's no enigma when the correct method of analysis is used and applied consistently. Just as with mathematics, so too in theology, there is only one right answer. In this program, I will present the correct biblical method and show how to use it consistently as you study a Bible passage. By doing this, you can know the very mind of God
and understand what he is saying to you. Isn't that fantastic? To know God's mind. Before I do this, we need to explain how you could get two totally different answers to this equation. As I know some of you won't be able to sleep nights if I don't. Can 1 equal 16? First of all, I would note that the standard way of solving equations is the rule you learned way back in math class as please excuse my dear Aunt Sally, P-E-M-D-A-S. It means you follow an order of operations beginning with the parentheses, then exponents, then multiplication, then division, and then addition, and finally subtraction. So therefore we take the equation of 8 divided by 2 parentheses 2 plus 2 close parentheses equals. First we perform the addition operation because it's in the parentheses. 2 plus 2 and we get 4. Then we do the multiplication. 2 times 4 and we get 8. Then we do the division. 8 divided by 8 equals 1. However, when you put this equation in a calculator, you might get a different answer. You might get 16. Now, how does that work? Well, that is placing the emphasis on the order of operations, not by the process, but the way they're written in the equation. In this case, the order is from left to right. So therefore, we first divide the 8 by the 2, and we get 4. Then comes the addition within the brackets, 2 plus 2, and gives us 4. Finally, we perform the multiplication, and what do we get? 4 times 4 equals 16. Thus, by taking different approaches to priorities, we get different answers. Now, as you probably guessed, anyone familiar with mathematics would tell us that there is a built-in ambiguity in this equation. But if you follow the standard established by mathematicians, you'll come up with the correct answer. Over 10,000 tweeters did solve it eventually this way. In both mathematics and theology, the principle is the same. You must use the correct method of analysis to arrive at a correct or a true answer. If you use the wrong method of analysis, you're going to get the wrong answer. Returning now to the world of theology and the Bible, we will see that if the correct method of analysis is used, we will arrive at a correct understanding of God's Word as God intended it. The Biblicist method of analysis is to search the Bible and compare Scripture with Scripture. This follows the example of the Bereans in Acts 17, verse 11. They carefully searched the scriptures to verify what Paul told them. First, I will present what I believe is the correct method of interpretation, and then we will consider how some prefer to interpret the Bible according to their predetermined personal beliefs. We begin with two foundational rules of Bible study. Rule number one, the scriptures are the inerrant word of God, and we accept that the Bible in our hands represents his word. The scriptures were literally breathed out by God, 
as he directed the writers in their choice of words, phrases, and grammatical construction. Rule number two. For any single verse, there is one and only one meaning. Now, there may be several possible applications of that meaning, but only one meaning per verse. This principle has been held for centuries until recently when some scholars began promoting multiple meanings in order to support their own theological ideas. These two rules are part of biblical interpretation, also known as hermeneutics. Bible hermeneutics follows a set of governing rules, laws, and methods that enable the Bible student to determine the meaning of the scriptures. Just as in mathematics, the rules of biblical hermeneutics include maxims, postulates, and settled rules. The author of the classical book on biblical hermeneutics is Milton Terry. He said that when one neglects these, and I quote, we drift out upon a sea of uncertainty and conjecture, end quote. This is precisely what is happening today as many well-known writers and speakers are abandoning the rules of hermeneutics in order to support their views on prophecy and on social justice and other cultural issues. Admission of multiple meanings in a verse or passage enables one to more easily inject his or her own ideas that may be contrary to God's original intention. If you follow these rules with uniform consistency in the study of any passage or verse, the one true meaning will become clear, the meaning that came from the mind of God. Now, to our first two rules, we now add two more essential rules. Rule number three, a Bible verse or passage should be considered in a literal, normal, historical, grammatical sense when interpreting the scriptures. This means that a verse or a passage is taken in its normal, its literal sense, not allegorically, unless the scripture clearly labels it as allegorical. That would be the one case in Galatians 4.24. Further, it is to be regarded in light of the historical framework in which it was written. And finally, the rules of grammar should be considered. Rule number four, the rules of interpretation must be applied consistently throughout the Bible. To allow exceptions, such as interpreting prophecy separate from the other system, leads to error. Now to answer your question, why do two Bible students Studying the same verse or passage come up with two diametrically opposed interpretations or meanings? The answer is that one or both of them do not follow the foundational rules of interpretation, for there is only one meaning presented in the scripture. Interestingly, the tension between Reformed Calvinist and Dispensational Biblicist is largely a direct result of two different methods of hermeneutics. People find different methods of interpretation appealing for a number of reasons. 
personal prejudice is one. The dislike of a particular group, the Jewish people, for example. Perhaps they desire to discover new truths. They have an axe to grind or have other personal motives. Doctrinal or creed prejudices. This is the desire to find support for a theological system that may not be solely based on the clear teachings of the Bible. This is often the case when interpreting prophecy. A third reason, spiritual resistance to God's word. Unregenerate man lacks understanding because he does not have the aid of the indwelling Holy Spirit to guide him. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. A fourth reason is the use of inconsistent or incorrect interpretive methodology, which may support any of the above, or may be just due to plain laziness. The first three reasons point to issues within the individual themselves, their personal beliefs and or their biases. These can't easily be addressed because they have to be dealt with in a personal way. But the fourth reason, however, is one that we can deal with through a study of biblical hermeneutics. Milton Terry wrote his classic textbook on biblical hermeneutics over a hundred years ago. His work has been called the most exhaustive single work in our language on the history of interpretation of the scriptures. Terry indicated that using the correct rules of interpretation act as a constraint to the student so that he truly understands God's written word and in so doing finds true satisfaction in studying God's thought and his mind. Key here is that the rules act as constraints that firmly hold us in check and keep us from going off in the wrong direction as we interpret God's word. They provide the bedrock of principles that we must build upon in our search for understanding the scriptures. When I get up to teach God's word, I want to be confident that I understand the very mind of God as accurately as I can so that I can pass that understanding on to those of you who are viewing and listening to our programs. In other words, I want to teach only what God intended. Because God does not want us to devise our own system of biblical interpretation or hermeneutics, he has taught and demonstrated the correct approach to Bible interpretation throughout the scriptures. Let us now look at God's method of biblical interpretation with these three critical components. The first component, literal, logical, normal, or natural understanding of the words and phrases in a passage. Second component, historical, cultural background at the time of being written. And third critical component, the grammatical limitations and amplification of the meaning of the verse, passage, or chapter. Let us look at the first critical component. A study of both Moses' life and writings revealed that he accurately wrote down God's very words. 
He accepted that they had come directly from God. He understood those words in their logical, literal, or normal sense. That is, the commonly understood meaning of the word at the time in which he lived. He didn't seek mystical or hidden meanings for them. In doing this, Moses followed the first critical component of interpreting or understanding God's words. That critical component is defined as, we must interpret the passage in the original sense of the speaker or writer according to the normal, customary, and proper usage of words and languages of that day. It is the duty of the Bible student to use various study helps to determine the author's understanding of the words that he used at the time he wrote them. Unfortunately, many critics of this literal component, they protest that negates the possible use of figurative language. They say that figures of speech or symbolical phrases, when taken literally, would seem absurd. But all great literature contains both figurative and non-figurative language, and the Bible does as well. For example, when Christ said he is the light of the world, John 8:12, nobody thinks this means he was literally a torch. Any person of average intelligence realizes that Christ was picturing himself in a manner that his listeners could immediately understand. He would light their way to eternal life. His figure of speech, or metaphor, presents his meaning in an easily envisioned manner. It didn't alter his meaning, rather it made the initially abstract concept into something the listener could readily picture. We all do this, and our listeners never start debating how many meanings they can create from our metaphors. Additionally, figurative language helps make God's word linguistically more interesting. While a youngster may not understand the phrase, his nose to the grindstone, any adult readily understands that this means that the person is working hard for a figure or metaphor gives a more vivid picture or sense to the reader than a lengthy paragraph explaining the workload a person is enduring. The meaning of a metaphor as stated is obvious and it's easily understood by the hearer of the time in which it was written. No one would mistake what the author intended. Thus, literal incorporates both figurative and non-figurative language, taking both as understood in their natural or normal sense, not forcing a hidden meaning into it. Whenever we find a figure or metaphor in the Bible, the context of the passage will clearly give us the meaning. When symbols are used, they are interpreted either in that immediate passage, in the book it's part of, or somewhere else in the scriptures. This, though, calls us to search the scriptures. We must base our understanding upon the actual words as originally intended when handling both figurative and non-figurative words and phrases. We must not add or detract from God's word by pushing our thoughts or our ideas into them, for that would alter God's message. 
Perhaps a better definition of literal hermeneutic is to interpret words, phrases, and sentences in their plain, proper, natural, and normal sense, such as normally and customarily used in language of the time it was written. Now, having briefly touched upon this first component of biblical hermeneutic, we move to the second component, the historical element. Our second critical component of biblical interpretation is to study the verse or passage in light of the culture and historical setting at the time in which it was written. God intends it to be understood just as the original hearers would have understood it. This isn't as difficult as it sounds. God demonstrates this method through the narrative that's found in Nehemiah chapter 8. This event occurred at a significant time in Israel's history. Surprisingly, there are some similarities with our own time. In this passage, Ezra relates events that took place on the first day of the seventh month on what is called the Feast of Trumpets. This Feast of Trumpets that the Jewish people observed in Jerusalem in the year 444 B.C. On this day, the people gathered together to worship and honor the Lord, just as he had commanded them to do in Leviticus 23, verses 2 and 6. These people had chosen to return to Israel from the Babylonian captivity when the Lord moved Persian King Cyrus to allow them to return in 538 B.C. They were the first of three groups to return to the shambles of Jerusalem, after living a comfortable life in Babylon. Initially, this group returned primarily for spiritual reasons, for they knew that God had commanded them to return to the temple site in Jerusalem three times each year to observe the appointed feasts, according to Deuteronomy 16.16. And for 70 years in exile, the Jewish people had been unable to return to Jerusalem to observe the feasts, and obey the command of their Lord. By the time of Nehemiah 8, however, the city wall was still in ruins, and many of the people had drifted away from their original spiritual purpose and their commitment to obey the covenant. What they needed was reminding. Thus, after Nehemiah 8, verse 1, we learn that they sensed a need for Bible teaching about the feasts of the Lord. Nehemiah 8.1 says, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. Now, for us to fully understand what was happening on this occasion, we must first learn about the historical cultural aspects that were connected with the feast's observance. The people knew that the feast should be observed at the temple site, but they didn't know the Lord's specific instructions about what they were to do. Therefore, they turned to the word of the Lord for instruction. We can't fully understand the depth of Nehemiah 8 without understanding this historical element that brought them to this point of ready to hear the scriptures. 
just as these people need to understand God's word in order to worship him properly, we too need to understand his word if we are to worship him properly. This chapter shows us the method of study that we need to do, that we need to follow in order to grow in spiritual maturity. Just as they turn to the law of Moses, the word of God for them, so too we must look to the completed Bible as our source. The key to all preaching and understanding is the source of the material taught. It must be the scriptures. Modern hermeneutic professor Stephen Lawson said, and I quote, The preacher should always be pointing to a biblical text. This word-centered focus in the pulpit is the defining mark of all true expositors, end quote. You cannot have expository preaching apart from the Bible. Notice, not about the Bible, not good moral thoughts drawn out of the scriptures, not a barrage of Bible proof texts having you jump all over the Bible and you can't keep track of where you are, but the bold proclaiming of thus saith the Lord using that passage itself to determine the teaching. In Nehemiah 8.8, 8, we see God's way of teaching from his word. For we read, So they, that's Ezra and the others who gathered to teach the word, so they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. As we will see very shortly, the grammar as well as the historical context must be taken into account in order to properly understand the full content of the passage. In this verse, there are three key phrases that we have to consider. Can you find three in verse 8? of Nehemiah 8? Well, the first one is they read in the book. The second is they gave the sense. And third, they caused the people to understand. The reading of the book was more than just a hurried reading followed by a preacher giving a motivational homily. Instead, they read it, according to the scripture, distinctly. That's not only by speaking clearly, but also by explaining or expounding the meaning so the people could understand what the words meant. Interestingly, from this Hebrew word distinctly comes the New Testament word Pharisee. Thus, the idea at the root of distinctly is the idea of separating or making clear the meaning of the words. Here's where the historical background comes in. For we know that the majority of the people, based on history, no longer understood Hebrew. You see, they had been born during the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity, and they spoke the language of the land. For this reason, they need someone to translate and explain the Hebrew text to them. They need someone to say, in the original language, this word meant. Have you ever heard of that? Well, that's what they had the same situation. These people not only were generations removed from the original language, but also from the events and teaching that Ezra was reading about. They needed to understand it as those who first had heard it. Back in the time when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the books of the law from God himself. 
Thus, Ezra and the other preachers conveyed the grammar, the historical context, the cultural uses, and the meanings of the words that had changed since it was first written by Moses. They took their contemporary listeners back in time so that the hearers could understand the text as the first hearers did. Notice, further, when the word was translated and explained, look how the people responded in verse 12. And all the people went their way to eat, to drink, and to send portions, and to make great mirth. Why? Because they understood the words that were declared unto them. You see, true expository preaching brings joy and excitement to people because they understand the words of God himself. As an observation, I want to note that there are several new interpretive methods within modern Christianity that have been adopted even by conservative Bible teachers. Some preachers and teachers do this by interpreting the Bible in light of today's cultural views and examining biblical events in light of them, when in reality, the people of Bible times never even considered such values. The social justice political movement of some Reformed Calvinistic groups do this to further their ends or their agenda. Furthermore, there is a movement to redefine prophetic teachings so as to support a Kingdom Now theology and a Kingdom Now culture rather than a millennial future kingdom. With time, leaders of these modern movements alter God's words in order to adapt it to their social agendas, their media-driven goals, and cultural change. This is wrong, for God and His Word does not change. Remember that any single verse has one meaning, but many possible applications to everyday life. The correct application of God's laws, principles, and meaning never changes and is independent of ever-changing social thinking. Thus, we must not put our social and contemporary views back into the original teachings of God's Word. Rather, we must understand the cultural and historical meanings of the writer's day in order to properly know and understand God's meaning, purpose, and direction. In other words, to know the mind of God. This takes effort, but to understand God's Word should be a priority in our lives if we are to know our God better. Think about this. You can know the mind of God, the creator of all the universe. This is an incredible privilege we are allowed as we study and look into His Word. It's really up to you if you really want to know the mind of God. You must make the effort. Having looked at the literal, normal, and historical aspects of biblical interpretation, let's now turn to the third component, the grammatical aspect. Now don't get panicky because you heard the word grammar. I'm sure with just careful walking through you can see the value of it, and as I once did, I came to realize that even though I hated grammar in the past, it is an incredible tool in studying God's Word, and I've actually come to enjoy it very much as I've used it, learned more about it, and applied it in His Word. 
it's truly an exciting study. Now, the seventh chapter of Ezra demonstrates why this aspect is so important to consider when interpreting scripture. It will give us an added depth into the meaning that God has put into his verses and texts. So please turn with me to Ezra chapter 7. The first part of chapter 7 relates the return of 1,800 Jewish exiles to Jerusalem, coming out of Babylon, a 900-mile trip. In verse 6, Ezra the scribe is introduced. We read, This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his requests, according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Now, there are terms here we may or may not understand what they are. So again, we have to go back to the cultural and see what was a ready scribe. As a ready scribe, Ezra was well-versed in the knowledge of the scriptures of his day. You see, he had required intense study and great effort on his part. The root of the Hebrew word ready, as part of ready scribe, means to be an expert as a result of extensive preparation. Ezra had done his part in learning. God responded by putting his hand upon Ezra, indicating that Ezra was qualified to serve in teaching God's word. We, we should take this to heart. It's not enough to be enthusiastic about God, to do daily devotionals, and regularly attend church. The earnest student of the Bible invests a significant amount of time and effort studying God's word. Now, let us consider the grammatical aspect of hermeneutics as it relates specifically to verse 10, which will be both our example and something we can learn from. This will help us significantly as we seek to understand what God is saying. Unfortunately, many Bible students avoid grammatical analysis, and for this reason they do not fully understand what is being said they may miss some of God's greatest thoughts. It's much easier in our day to do grammatical analysis than it was just 15 years ago. Today, Bible computer programs are readily available on the web to do most of the work for us. These programs parse for us. Parse means to take apart the various elements of a word to parse for us and give us the parts of speech or grammar for each word. It's no longer necessary to know Hebrew or Greek. Now I realize that you may have bad memories of grammar, so I'm going to walk through this analysis very slowly. The basic components of most sentences are the subject, the verb, and the object of the verb. In other words, the subject is who or what is doing the action, the verb is the action that is described, and the object of the sentence is the thing that is acted upon by the subject. So let us look at Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, and let's analyze this together. First of all, let's find the subject, verb, and the object. The verse reads, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes, 
and judgments. Now, can you find the two-word verb phrase? That's right. Had prepared. Wasn't hard, was it? Now, what is the subject? <laughs> you could almost guess that. It's Ezra. See how easy this is? What had Ezra prepared and acted upon? That's right, his heart. Ezra had prepared his heart. Simple enough? These words tell us that Ezra had prepared his innermost being to serve his Lord. He did this by earnestly studying the Word of God, for he wanted to teach it, proclaim it, tell others about it accurately, representing his God. Regrettably, many preachers and teachers of our day treat the Word as if it's sort of a decorative element in their message or lesson. They read a few token verses, and then they elaborate by using their own thoughts and ideas, or the ideas of others, or quoting this commentary or this great Christian of the past. Not only does this dishonor God, but it distorts his word and starves the flock of spiritual nourishment. Stephen Lawson likens it to the playing of the American National Anthem at a baseball game. Picture the scene, the stadium, all the people stand, the anthem is played, and it's instant it's over. It's, well, let's get to the real thing, the baseball game. You see, the anthem was just sort of a nice touch, but not essential to the baseball game. So, too, is reading a few token verses and then going off and giving your own ideas. You're saying the scripture is kind of a token. It's not an integral part of what you're teaching. That is wrong. That misrepresents our God and his word. Now, let's get back to verse 10. Notice the little word at the very beginning. For, F-O-R. This is a grammatical pointer indicating that what follows tells us Ezra's purpose in coming to Jerusalem. His purpose was to prepare himself to teach the word of God. When a believer desires to serve the Lord and does his or her part, God does what he can do and leaves what we can do for us to do first. Because Ezra had prepared his heart, God providentially moved the Persian king to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem, where Ezra would teach them. From this we can learn that no one should attempt to teach God's word to others before earnestly preparing. As we learned in Nehemiah 8, Ezra's coming and subsequent preaching caused a great revival to break out in the southern kingdom of Israel and was very important to turning the nation back to a covenantal relationship with her God. Now here is a diagram, a picture, if you will, that illustrates the grammar of the verse and enables us to understand God's thoughts in a more clear, distinct way. I tend to think in pictures, and this helps me greatly. Perhaps it can help you. In essence, what we are looking at is God's organization of this verse. If you will, kind of his, his notes. So we've, we've stepped beyond the mere words and looking into how he planned it, how he organized it. Preachers and teachers should always study a verse by following God's thought order, 
and not rearrange phrases to suit their clever message or to give them alliteration and all these clever uh, speaking techniques. They should follow the order as God outlined it through his grammar. We'll begin by looking at the subject and verb. To do this, we're going to go back to our computer. We go to our website. We enter a search for Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. This takes us to an online Bible program that will give us a wealth of information about our particular verse. As you see, here's our verse. We go to the tools. Now this is a tremendous tool. It gives us enormous amount of information. Interlinear Bibles, commentaries, and you can investigate these on your own. But we're going to go to the interlinear. Immediately brings up, first of all, in the Hebrew, Ezra 7.10. Over here we have the verse broken down into phrases. On the right is a thing called parsing. This is a very important tool because the label parse is going to indicate, first of all, where there's verbs in this verse. These are going to be, in this case, four verb forms. Now, let's concentrate on the main verb at first. Had prepared. Ezra had prepared. This is our main verb. We go over to the parse and we select it. Immediately, we get information about this verb. Now, in this program, what is called aspect is what you and I have probably always used the term tense. We find that it is the perfect tense. Now, you may not remember what perfect tense means, so you click on it, and it tells us here that the perfect expresses a completed action. Ezra had prepared. This has been completed. It's in the past. The stem is something new. It's called the hifel. This stem gives us an indication, uh, an insight, if you will, more into what God planned through the choosing the hifel instead of what is commonly called the cal. Selecting hifel, we see here it tells us a hifel usually expresses the causative action of cal. Now cal is the simplest form of a verb, like he ate, notice in this example. In the hifel, it becomes he caused to eat or he fed. So in our particular verb, had prepared, this tells us that Ezra had done the preparing. It means that Ezra established or set his course to study the Word of God. Now, God didn't magically give Ezra the knowledge or forced him to do his homework to study the Word of God. You see, Ezra applied self-discipline to his study. From his innermost being, Ezra focused on preparing himself for the Lord's service. Remember, we define this grammatical component with the idea of God constraining or compelling us to follow his progression of thought. Think of this for a minute. God created language and grammar to serve his purposes, not to make you miserable just in school. If we allow the grammar of a passage to constrain us to God's thinking, we'll never go wrong. Following this principle, we notice that after the main verb had prepared, and we go back here to look at parsing, we see we have three more verb forms in this passage. They are to seek, to do, and to teach. These three verbs help us define how Ezra prepared. 
Therefore, in our chart, we're going to place them under the main verb. Now, we go to the parse. We find out the first one is infinitive. That's all we want to look at at the moment. Cal, it's in the simple form. The infinitive. We go to the next verb form, and we find it too is in the infinitive. And you probably guessed the third is also in the infinitive. These words are flagged because they say to see, to do, to teach. These are infinitives. These three verbs help define how Ezra prepared. Therefore, they're placed under the verb. We can say with confidence, based on the order that God has placed them, he's made these three things parallel to each other, same tense, and they are showing how Ezra prepared to serve the Lord. He did this by seeking the law of the Lord. That's God's word. He did it by doing the law in his everyday life. And finally, he taught the law. God's word order shows us the sequence that we are also to follow to prepare to serve him. First, we must seek his word by earnestly studying it. Seeking means to study with great care. That's step one. Now, after studying, we must apply what we have learned to our own lives. That is, we must obey and act upon that which we have learned. Studying for studying's sake is pointless unless the knowledge we have gains influences in our lives and our actions. The grammar of doing suggests that Ezra didn't just give it his best shot, but that he accomplished a real goal in his life. Furthermore, he took it one step at a time. Probably not knowing the exact form of service God was leading him to with his training, he just followed the steps. You see, God takes us a step at a time also. When he was ready and prepared for what God had planned for him, God created the circumstances that allowed Ezra to return to Israel according to the good hand of his God upon him. You see this? He did his studying. He applied it in his life. He was now complete and prepared, ready to teach. Now God's hand takes him and moves him back to Jerusalem. Effective teachers of the scriptures first must know and apply what they have learned in their own lives before teaching others. One of the joys for me of preparing these videos is that I first must learn the lessons and act upon them in my own life. The enrichment that comes from moving into each of these areas of study make the long hours well worth it. Now, back in Ezra 7.10, these first two infinitives are in the cal. Remember, that was in the cal. This is in the cal. But when we come to the third infinitive, we find that it is in a different stem. It is in the pl. Now, this signifies a change that God wants us to notice. These aren't just three infinitives, but God says the first two are going to be in the cal, simple statements. But this third one's pl. That's, that's indicating an intensive result from first seeking and doing. You see, because Ezra had done the first two steps, he now was intensively or empowered to teach. As a consequence of Ezra's seeking and doing the law of God, he was enabled to teach others with an effective intensity because he knew his subject well. 
He had personally experienced what he had learned. When the people heard him to teach, they listened. You see, here's why they listened. Not because Ezra is clever, or he, he made it in a clever way to present it. No, they knew they were hearing the very thoughts of God himself, not just a pep talk from Ezra. If you follow the three components of biblical hermeneutics that we have covered in this program, not only will you be able to properly interpret God's word, but also you will gain insight into the very mind of God. Now, before we end this program, I must mention an important requirement for successfully applying biblical hermeneutics. That is consistency. Make a commitment to apply these three components consistently in your Bible studies. Use them throughout the entire Bible. That's right, from Genesis to Revelation. Now, this is why covenant reform Calvinists differ significantly from Biblicist dispensationalists. You see, Biblicists interpret all subjects within the Bible by consistently seeking to understand the original sense of the speaker or the writer according to the literal normal usages of words and language. Now, they take into account the cultural environment of Bible times as well as the accepted rules of grammar and rhetoric. There are no exceptions to using this normal hermeneutic. By contrast, while covenant reform Calvinists do use the literal, normal, historical, grammatical method of hermeneutics for most biblical interpretation, they switch to an allegorical or spiritual, as they call it, hermeneutic for prophecies, prophecies that are related to the latter days leading up to the new heavens and new earth. I'd quickly add that many of their doctrines also are supported by this allegorical hermeneutic. Allegorical hermeneutic is an interpretive method that assumes that there are various levels of meaning in a Bible verse or passage, as opposed to the normal historical grammatical approach that offers one meaning to a verse or passage. Thus, for the allegorical approach, one must search for the hidden meanings. In doing this, there are inherent fatal flaws of interpretation. The first fatal flaw is that understanding scripture depends upon one's skill in finding those hidden meanings. Basically, allegorical interpretation suggests that God is kind of playing a game of hide-and-seek with the students of his word. For the more clever and more spiritual one is, you get the prize, the hidden meanings. The rest of us have to be satisfied with a superficial meaning. Such an attitude reflects elitism and pride. This also suggests that God is partial with his people. Understanding the scriptures becomes more of an inherent or an imaginative skill granted by God to the elite and denied to the simple folk. But God calls upon all of us to study his word 
and to study it diligently. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, God says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You see, in order to show ourselves approved unto God, we must be able to rightly divide. That means to interpret the word of truth. Surely God would not set us up to fail because we're not clever enough to find the hidden meanings? The second fatal flaw is that allegorical interpretation replaces God's thoughts with man's thoughts. Allegorical interpretation removes God's constraints for scriptural interpretation that he intended as a safeguard to prevent the interpreter from introducing his or her own personal background, view of history, prejudices, presuppositions, and theology into the passage or verse they're studying. Instead of coming up with interpretations on our own, when we come to a portion of scripture we don't understand, it's much better to compare scripture with scripture. God will give us understanding of symbols, figures of speech, concepts, etc., all within the Bible. For example, when I teach the book of Revelation, I note that all of John's pictures or symbols are explained or defined either by John himself in the passage that's being read in other writings of John or by searching the Old and New Testament. This is much easier today than previously for computer Bible programs offer great assistance in word searching. Yes, <laughs> this takes work, effort, and diligence. But don't we want to know God's thoughts and not man's inventions? The third fatal flaw is the arbitrariness of choosing which hermeneutic is appropriate for a given passage or a verse. Typically, those using both systems treat Old Testament prophecies of Christ's first advent or coming with the literal historical grammatical hermeneutic. But then his second advent prophecies or second coming prophecies, they treat with the allegorical hermeneutic. The consistent use of a single hermeneutic would eliminate the arbitrariness that results from this approach and constrains or firmly directs the student toward the true meaning of any passage. While a normal hermeneutic may require more work than an allegorical hermeneutic, the rewards are greater. You can learn God's thoughts and instructions and apply them to your life. Our God is a great God. He has allowed us to understand his plan and purpose for history if we're willing to make the effort to study and learn. We don't have to be brilliant. We just have to be diligent. I hope you found this study to be helpful in explaining how two Bible teachers can interpret a passage so differently. This would not be the case if all students consistently used the literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic. 
Now until next time, may the Lord bless you mightily. I will see you either here or in the air.